welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Welcome back to Ivy League Murders. Hi, Sarah. We have one of the strangest cases uh, we've done so far. This one takes us into a whole other world of, boy, like 70s, 80s, punk rock, L.A. L.A. and Cambridge. And Cambridge. And really, it's eclectic. This is a very eclectic. A very cool hometown, eclectic Harvard case. That's right. So we've entitled this case, The Curious Life and Death of Harvard's Peter Ivers, A New Wave Mystery. So Peter Ivers defies categorization. He was composer, singer, writer, and performer. At the end of his life, he was best known as the boyish face sensei and host of New Wave Theater a cable show that aired in the early 80s. It featured such up-and-coming punk and new wave acts as the Dead Kennedys and the Circle Jerks. Ivers also wrote and sung the main theme to David Lynch's Eraserhead. He was best friends with National Lampoon's Doug Kenny, also a Harvard guy. Kenny created Animal House and Caddyshack. And so Ivers hung out with the likes of John Belushi and the original cast of Saturday Night Live before it was SNL. This is just a snapshot of the different orbits of Peter Ivers. So in perennial dark sunglasses and dressed all in black, Ivers appeared in some ways too cool to want to be a celebrity. Secretly, he was surrounded by it and did want fame and he always seemed to be on the cusp of it, but not quite there. Sadly, it would be his brutal murder in 1983 in his downtown loft that would catapult him to fame and would rocket the various worlds he inhabited. So who killed Peter Ivers? Here to discuss Ivers' life and his art are Robin Rosenfeld and Alex Zappa. Robin and Alex are the hosts of a fantastic podcast called Art Laws, which explores cultural outlaws. Welcome, Alex and Robin. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I've been listening to Art Laws, you guys. It's the coolest. Oh, my God. Narcissister is just yes. wild. You guys, where do you guys find these no, amazing, amazing characters? Like, well, Narcissister was somebody I knew about in New York. And it was funny because I always I was always fascinated, but I was also kind of afraid of her. And I think it took us having this conversation that we really, really understood her work. And now she's one of our favorite artists. Yeah, she's she's so interesting. She's amazing. Incredibly knowledgeable on, you know, in so many fields. Also an Ivy League graduate from Brown. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. So she, uh, to the listener who that is. Yeah. Who, who is Narcissister? Well, Narcissister is a performance artist. She was um, actually a receptionist for Jeffrey Deitch at Deitch Projects for a while. And she had studied dance at Brown and she was performing at night. And Deitch actually came to one of her performances at one point and saw her and kind of took her on because he couldn't get over what she was doing. And she really blends burlesque with dance, with art, visual art. And she's come up with this character of Narcissister that is her, I would say, alter ego. And it's what's interesting to me, though, is like we're talking about Peter Ivers today. Narcissister and Peter Ivers are so similar. And you might say, why? But 
Peter Ivers, like Narcissister, exists in all these different worlds. Narcissister with dance, with music, with avant-garde art, with performance. Peter Ivers with punk, with film, um, with television, with comedy. With Art Laws, we're interested in these people that sort of bridge the gap between cultures and bring their own spin. And that's why I think with us, for us, Peter Ivers is the ultimate art law, to use our trademarked uh, (laughs) term. (laughs) But anyway... That no, absolutely. He really was an art law. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He really was very much, very much. And where do we start with, with, with Peter in some ways, you know, he was a Harvard guy. He was born September 20th, 1946. And he was actually born Peter Scott Rose, the third. And then eventually his mother remarried, I think. And, you know, he became Peter Ivers. This but is, this is I have to just interject because I think this is so funny because Peter's father died of lung cancer. But then his mother went on vacation and met her second husband. And I, I think his name was Ivanstein. And she didn't like the name. So she just <laughs> she married him and changed the name, which I think is so funny. <laughs> she just said, no, I'm not. That's not going to be my last name. So we're changing it to Ivers. That's- and she changed the name. It's right. already very Hollywood. I like yeah. it. <laughs> I just love it. She's like, I love you, but I don't love your name. Right. <laughs> so they changed it. So he was friends with Belushi and all the Lampoon guys at Harvard, it sounds like. Well, he met Doug Kenny um, at Harvard, and Doug Kenny would go on to found the National Lampoon magazine. And uh, he would go on to write Animal House and and Caddyshack and become obviously a hugely successful writer. And they became best friends at Harvard. So, you know, Doug Kenny and Peter Ivers were really kind of in, and then Peter Ivers' girlfriend, Lucy Fisher, were kind of the three musketeers at Harvard. What's interesting to me is that they all sort of went to LA around the same time, it seems. And both Lucy and Doug found early success. I mean, they were really, she became a film executive and Doug, obviously, with National Lampoons. But it was funny because Peter was always sort of on the edge of of success and notoriety, yet he was respected and brought into all these different worlds. And I wonder if you know if if in Harvard that was the case. I know he was part of the theater scene. Um, Do we know anything about his Harvard days? Well, actually, he was really involved in the music community in Boston. So not oh. just at Harvard. I mean, he was involved in the theater at Harvard, kind of more as like a techie. Tech, you know? yeah. yeah. But he was super involved in the music scene. And they say he was one of the best harmonica or harp players, they called them. Didn't really Muddy around. Waters say that? Muddy That's Waters right. said he was the best mouth, you know, harp players that he knew. So he was really, you know, he was one of these people who was, playing local clubs, really active in this in the Boston local music scene and really known for his music. So he was very, very involved in the kind of local art music scene. And Peter Ivers had a genius IQ and his parents really wanted him to have a really traditional role, you know, job in finance or something really safe. So did Doug Kenny's parents. So, you know, they really both were taking this really not mainstream route. Right. And so they were both doing something off the beaten, you know, that wasn't expected of them and was very risky. But Peter Ivers' whole personality was just completely out there, not mainstream. He was always doing really wacky things. And that started at Harvard. Well, and also he graduates in 1969. This is a pretty like, this is Cambridge, 1969. You can imagine it's probably, you know, probably pretty wild. I would, I, you yes, know. Yes, it's think, the 60s. Know. We're talking yeah. about a cultural revolution happening, people wanting to be different than their parents. And you, you really see a lot of that in Peter Ivers and Doug Kenny, really wanting to reject the politics and the mainstream ideas of their parents wanting to do something different, wanting to move to LA, wanting to do something artistic. But now, but I think Ivers graduates from Harvard and goes to New York. Is that correct? Ivers goes to LA. Yeah, he goes right to LA. I think he went to LA. He was, there was a Tim Hunter who was a classmate at Harvard of his, and I think who became a director and he had relocated to score his film Devil's Bargain. And that's sort of what brought him there. And then from there, I think he had like immediate 
uh, Van Dyke Parks discovered him and he signed to a, a record label. So he was pretty, I mean, it was pretty quick that he was sort of noticed, not in the mainstream, but noticed by sort of these uh, figures within the music scene. I don't know if you guys have seen a movie called Decline of Western Civilization. It like it, yes. It's kind of like the like 80s L.A. punk. You know, there was a whole real underground in, in L.A. at that time of like punk rock. You know, we're talking like punk rock, new wave. And I really feel like Peter was sort of spearheaded a lot, a lot of this really alternative kind of, kind right. of music. I think so. And and also he had this manifesto about a collage sense of reality. He wanted, he, he thought that that was sort of the new way to go, which kind of prefigured MTV in a way by bringing in so many different influences to his music and yes. different collaborations, et cetera. Well, it, it's funny because there's this book, um, We Got the Neutron Bomb, and I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's about the LA punk scene. And around that time, a lot of the punk scene was around, was basically in Chinatown. And a lot of these bands performed at Chinese restaurants. They were not welcomed into mainstream clubs. It, New York sort of had its own scene. LA had its own scene. So, you know, people like the Go-Go's and bands that we know today who were completely unknown were playing these like restaurants, essentially, which was, I thought, very funny. So, when he arrived, it was kind of interesting because it was, you know, right after sort of the hippie movement ended, right as disco was happening, and then this underground movement that he associated himself with. So to me, I think that's kind of a cool, a, a cool place Very that he cool. found himself. Yeah. I didn't realize Chinatown was hopping in, in terms of the music scene that way. It, it had to be because they really had no other place to perform. I mean, this it goes into it a lot in that book, which is great. But L.A. was very, um, again, like it is today, very segregated by neighborhoods, which we'll get into later in terms of where he ended up. But it's just it's interesting that he found himself sort of, again, on the edge, being in this sort of counterculture. And it's so interesting that he and Lucy were this couple because... They seem so opposite in terms of the work that she did here in Hollywood, very yeah. mainstream movies. You know, she was definitely took risks, but I just think that, you know, I've met Lucy Fisher and it just, it seems like a, an unlikely pair a little bit in huh. terms of even personality, but I guess opposites attract. Yeah. And I think they were really, you know, each other's first love. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think they probably grew in different ways. So, you know, a lot of our first loves from college, and then you can really grow differently as you get older and mature. And I think that seems to be a bit of what happened with them. Right. And it sounds like she really respected him as an artist and really continued to stand by him and his work, even posthumously. You know, Absolutely. We, we talked to the author, one of the authors of the book, Charlie Buckholz, um, but he was saying that actually Lucy is still upset about the murder. Like she had a hard time talking to them about Peter Ivers' murder. It still affects her. In doing this, I kind of thought, hey, why hasn't somebody done a documentary on this? This is like a really cool slice of life in L.A., it's kind of an untapped scene in some ways. And, and I thought to myself, boy, you know, Lucy Fisher is a, she's a producer. Why wouldn't she want to do this? And I think she still has an emotional tie to, right. you know, to this. And it still is upsetting. And that's understandable. I, I guess maybe we could, we can go back a little bit because I think what I'm interested in, and maybe we could talk more about it, but essentially um, the new wave theater, because I think, to me, that is what, um, that's how I knew Peter Ivers, which is funny. I had no idea about the murder. I had no idea about everything around that, but I did know about New Wave Theater and how important and how influential it was. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Definitely. And let's talk about how he, uh, and Peter Jove, who is how he gets involved in New Wave Theater. So New Wave Theater was a cable show. It was kind of, I, I, I don't want to say it's like a pre-MTV because I think it was kind of more alternative. MTV was very much a pop kind of thing, but New Wave Theater really showcased pretty edgy acts, actually. The list goes on and on, but I think they had like, you know, Dead Kennedy, Circle Jerks. They also just had, you know, all kinds of different characters and different races and gay people and transvestites and just all things that were just really edgy at the time. I mean, they may not seem edgy today, 
but you know, and they were in the early eighties to have all these things and to be really open and to be really, and Peter Ivers was, I mean, and, well, and that stuff's available on YouTube for anyone to see. It's great too, because he was this sort of, um, he would ask questions to like black flag, for instance, like what is the meaning of life? Yes, I mean, he was so, that was his big he, question. Yeah. <laughs> but he would provoke these punks to Alex, the point you, where a lot of bands didn't want to show up anymore because of his personality in a way. But, but, um, to me, it was interesting because he was such a, he was so punk himself, but with this sort of veneer of being East Coast and being, again, very National Lampoons, I think, which was interesting. That had a very sort of like, I think a very Ivy League kind of feel to it, but was so subversive. So he kind of brought that idea to this punk show, to the, to this TV show. Yeah, and um, he had a way of, like you were saying, he was a provocateur. He was kind of known for almost insulting people at times and pissing them off. but. At the same time, it was like you were saying, Laura, that it was a very edgy thing that he was doing there, which at the time was exciting and fun and still is. Yeah. And I think he had, you know, there was definitely a real depth to him and to be asking these guys that normally hung out in mosh pits, you know, what's the (laughs) meaning of life? And that's really was his big question. And I mean, I think it's telling about him that he was kind of looking for the meaning of life because that's what he asked everybody. Yeah, he's also been described as sort of a guru as well. Yeah, exactly. To a lot of these like fledgling punk bands, you know, and and a lot of other people as well. But that wasn't the only world he was in, though, because there were so many other. He he really sort of had, you know, he had the Hollywood connections. He, you know, David Lynch, um, Ron Howard. He scored for Ron Howard as well. Yeah. And musicians. And he was very surrounded by famous people. Oh, definitely. I mean, he hung out with Timothy Leary uh, in the book In Heaven, Everything is Fine. You know, there's so many anecdotes. And one of the great ones is, you know, him just sitting at Bob's Big Boy with David Lynch and Devo, you know, just (laughs) all having like chocolate milkshakes. And, you know, Josh Frank and Charlie Buckholtz just really get you know, they, they interviewed so many people and they have these so many great stories that are just really fun and just show all the different worlds he inhabits. And he hangs out with Steve Martin one day and then he's hanging out with these hardcore punks the next day. And it's just really fascinating. And I think it, you know, in, in mainstream success really did kind of elude him. It's like he would just kind of get there and then he wouldn't quite get there. And I do think he really wanted it. And I think it must have been difficult for him because everybody he was around, they all kind of acted like they didn't care, especially like Doug Kenny, but they were all extremely successful. I, I'd counter that and say, I don't think Doug Kenny did care. You don't think frankly. he did? I think he was kind of like, I, yeah, maybe he did. I, 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 I think it kind of ruined him, actually. I think no, it, I, I think ruined it ruined him. him, too. I mean, he also had a terrible cocaine problem, but which, you know, Peter Ivers didn't have a drug problem. You know, it doesn't appear he had a drug problem. But I just think that, you know, it's there's kind of something about that, like, Ivy League, I don't care attitude that I'm not sure I believe. <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> but I think he did kind of care. He was the great connector, though. It was, it was, you know, he bridged the gap between these worlds that never would have met comedy and punk and Harvard and, and New Wave. And, and it was just to me. International music. He brought yeah. in Asha Putley to do these collaborations like Night of the Blue Communion and, and Jesus, a Passion Play that actually I think was broadcast on WGBH in Boston and all over the place. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because one other thing that, that's pointed out in the book is that, you know, Doug Kenny and a lot of the National Lampoons, they kind of categorize everybody as either a snob or a slob, <laughs> and which is kind of true how they do it. But Peter <laughs> Ivers really looked at it, things in a much bigger picture. And if you look at like Animal House or Caddy, it is kind of everybody's like a snob or a slob. But he, lo- he looked at everybody in a much broader sense and he saw people in a much bigger picture well it's funny to me because you look at like people like david byrne with talking heads and you see and devo it's like peter ivers was almost too ahead of his time and it was the irony is is that finally in the 80s when things were starting to go his way and the culture was starting to shift in the direction where he had been already for probably over a decade 
that's when things sort of when when he lost his life. But I think in terms of his music now, it's finally being looked at in a new light, and people are really appreciating him as as a musician. I God only knows what his composing his film compositions would have been like had he lived. You know what he would have gone on to do. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, we say that he's on the cusp of fame, but I think he would have definitely become very influential and have gone on to do a lot of really interesting collaborations. And I mean, even like Leonard Cohen really admired him, like really big people really admired him. And I guess it begs the question, I mean, who was Peter Ivers in some ways? He, he does sort of elude description for me in many ways. On the one hand, he is a, you know, he's not a screwed up junkie who is just hanging around the fringes of, of these great people. And, you know, he was, he, he smoked a little bit of weed, but he was not a drug addict. But he lived in this really pretty, you know, pretty downtrodden loft. In uh, Chinatown, right? It's it like it, it borders Skid Row. It was yeah, it's where the arts scary. district is now, yeah. Um, yeah. which I actually I drove by there a few days ago just to sort of get a sense of where where he lived. It's very expensive now, but still right outside of Skid Row. So I can only imagine, you know, in the early 80s what it was like. And that's where he moved when he split up with Lucy Fisher, it sounds like, because prior to that, they were in Laurel Canyon and they were sort of in that musical community mm -hmm. where they could hear music across the canyon. So that was a big change for him. And I was curious when Alex brought up that Chinatown was this punk scene, if that's what made him gravitate down there. But it sounds like he was, well, just east of there. I wonder if there's a part of him that felt like he needed that edge. He needed to live in a place that had a sense of danger because here he was, this Harvard guy who was part of the punk scene. And maybe in a lot of ways, he was an outsider there. Right. He was the ultimate outsider. Maybe that was his way of, I don't know, of, of gaining credibility among all these people. I don't know. That maybe I, 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 I read, though, that he was like perennially in debt and he, he was doing it sort of to save money. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so just not, not to burst your bubble. But, oh, wow. But I, but I do think there was something like edgy and dark about, you know, the, a lot of these punk rock bands would like go and take over like an old hotel downtown. And it was really like infested, but they would like they loved the like the grittiness, the edge of it. And sure. I think I think it was I read an article and about the loft and one of his friends did say, like, it was very Peter, you know. So <laughs> but but let's be, you know, to put an objective reality on it, though, I actually had a friend who had a loft in that area in the 90s. And it was frightening back then. In fact, uh, not to sorry, it's kind of off color, but outside of his loft. They had they found a murdered prostitute in a dumpster right outside of Whoa. his loft. Hmm. That's the kind of area you're talking about. I mean, they're in in that area. I had read there at the year that Peter Ivers was uh, was killed. There had been 66 murders just in that area. Yeah. And it you was know? really very different than the arts district is now. It was much more. Yeah. No one spent much time down there. It was, it was really on the edge at that time. And so, yeah, it was a, a gritty kind of displacement. He was also a person, you know, from what we gathered from talking to um, Charlie Buckholtz, you know, he, he felt very invincible, didn't have a lot of fear. Yeah. So I don't think he really had much fear for his safety. Well, he uh, left his door open all the yeah, time, right? Even though he probably should have. Um, or unlocked, yeah. And maybe we should talk a little bit about New Wave Theater and about David Jove, who he worked with at New Wave Theater. Um, Before we move on to that, though, Laura, I just wanted to touch on that because I do think sort of creatively, Peter Ivers was very fearless. And socially, he was very fearless agree, as yeah. well. But he strikes me, and we were talking about, he strikes me as the kind of guy who's like on the street and he's just like, hey, come on up. I'll show you the new album cover I, yeah. just, I just designed. So I do think that somewhere he's a, he was perhaps a bit naive mm -hmm. about other people. 
maybe I'm wrong. It's a little bit of conjecture, but you know, we were talking about that possibly some of that fearlessness perhaps, you know, led to his murder. You well, know. His whole life is, is risk. Everything he did going to LA, the television show, I mean, even his music career, everything about his life was being on the edge and not knowing what was going to happen next. And to me, I, I mean, for somebody who had so many successful friends, I mean, he could have gotten, a, I'm, I'm sure he could have made a phone call and gotten a job in National Lampoons or gotten some something if he needed the money. There's something more to it. And I just don't quite know. But I, there's there's got to be a reason why he decided again to put himself in that location to sort of and, and again, this is not like it's um LA is very sprawling. This is not like downtown is right next to Hollywood, next to Beverly Hills, next to Venice, wherever all of his friends and his circle of people were. So that to me, I think really is is an interesting question. Yeah. And also just from what I've read and understood is there was, like Sarah was saying, there was an innocence and almost a childish quality about him. And a pure, in, in a way, as edgy as he was, he was also this kind of purist, I can do anything, I'm going to try anything, I'm an artist. But, but I know Asha Putley described him as this sort of impish, kind of uh, childlike character. And if you look at early photos of him, he has that childlike quality. I was going to say, if you look at him, I mean, he's actually, a, you know, I mean, he's even little. I mean, if you look at pictures of him, I am. Yeah, she described him as a pixie. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know that he's even like five, six. I mean, he's a little guy and he's very animated. Very boyish. Like almost you know. petite looking yeah. and... And again, I suggest every, there's lots of photos of him, lots of footage available, totally worth watching. We'll post some pictures. Yeah. Well. And yes. uh, in the New Wave Theater, you can really see how animated he was. And he really, I mean, he just wore all kinds of costumes and was just really. And in, wigs and. Wigs. Yeah. 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 Just really, really great stuff. Really, really risky and, and crazy for the time. So then that brings us back to New Wave Theater, Laura. So can you tell us a little bit about his relationship with David Jove and what David Jove's role was in the New Wave Theater? Well, David Jove was the co-founder of New Wave Theater, and then he asked Peter Ivers to host New Wave Theater. So that was, that's basically how Peter Ivers got involved. But David Jove is kind of a sketchy character, and, and you know, this will play into later uh, as far as him maybe being a potential suspect. So David Jove is just basically, you know, a pretty sketchy character. He's actually Canadian, but he spent a lot of time in London in the 60s and had actually been kind of caught up with the Rolling Stones in... <laughs> in a drug deal in the 60s and is often referred to as the acid king. So you know the story, Alex, right? Yeah, this is very weird. Very, so very weird. apparently he had gotten caught at Heathrow with some drugs and he was, I think he's kind of like, I don't want to say a con man, but you know what I mean? One of those guys who's kind of like has this, I don't, you don't really know why, but he kind of knows everybody and he has like, kind of has his hands in all kinds of different deals and he knew the stones and he was bringing them drugs and he basically set them up to get out of the deal he was he was in with the government and he got them busted for acid you mean there's a sleazy music producer (laughs) shocking (laughs) i'm just surprised after i mean he it was keith richards and mick jagger that he had arrested in 67 and I'm just surprised he could come to Hollywood and work. You know what I mean? That after all that, that that didn't tarnish his name. Well, it changed he, his it's name. Like he became. <laughs> he oh, he, oh he changed. Okay. <laughs> he changed his I didn't name. know that. There you go. But I mean, I don't, I mean, he changed his name, but I mean, they obviously knew who he was. I mean, Keith Richards later kind of outed him in this biography. So, I mean, they obviously figured out who he was. I don't know how long it took. But he comes to Hollywood later, changes his name, recreates himself marries Lenny Bruce's ex, Lotus Weinstock. <laughs> right. Random. Right. <laughs> right. Who's, you know, and, and has a child with her who is actually a, a pretty well-known violinist, uh, Lily Hayden, who's... Uh, Alex? Lily's. Wait. 
we know her. We oh, you know. Yes, through Paul and Angela, who were on our podcast. Yeah, um, she's oh, she's amazing. Yeah, I thought that. Okay, that's okay. That's so weird. I thought yeah. we knew Lily. Yeah. But we do but know. That's Lily. so interesting. So Lily Hayden's the daughter of David, Jove, and and um, Lotus, Lotus Weinstock. Wow. Yes, and she went to Brown, so she's an Ivy Leaguer. And, you know, apparently... <laughs> I have her newest album. She's she's brilliant. Yeah, so apparently the only thing in, in David Job's life he really took seriously or really actually completely adored was his daughter and Lily. And, and that was one thing he really put a lot of energy into. So people spoke very highly of how he treated his daughter, and that's Lily. And I've seen her, I've watched her perform on not live, but on, on YouTube and she's amazing. Yeah. She's truly gifted. And, um, (laughs) you guys are both like in shock. I I am because it's so interesting that those were Lily's parents. I, that's Laura, Laura just does really obscure name dropping. (laughs) 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 The, uh, kidding. But so right before Peter Ivers was murdered. He told David Jove that he no longer wanted to be the host on New Wave Theater, which apparently was kind of heartbreaking for David Jove. In any case, he had also just sold a treatment, uh, I believe, for quite a big chunk of money right before he was murdered. Right. And he had just picked up the check. So apparently David Jove had, you know, a bad reputation. He had weapons and he wasn't, you know, a lot of people were afraid of him. He was not the type of person that you messed around with, that you said no to. Devo was afraid of him. They never went on New Wave Theater because of him. So he wasn't somebody, you know, there were a lot of people in Hollywood, a lot of musicians that didn't like him. Yep. That's uh, right. You know, he has kind of a mixed reputation, but. To me, it's interesting because New Wave Theater was picked up, I believe, soon before uh, USA Network picked it up and had put it on their um, their overnight programming, which was weekends, I believe. So Peter Ivers was becoming more famous. And and to me, it had to have been something had to have been happening if for him to decide to leave that show. I mean, to me, he was getting to be very, very famous through it. I don't know if there's if we know anything more about that, their relationship disintegrating of any way. But that just is curious to me that he would walk away from something that was just really picking up. That's true. But I think he was getting other opportunities. I think the check that he had received, there were other opportunities that was going to lead to something really profitable. And I I doubt he made a lot of money on New Wave Theater. You know what I I mean? Probably not. Probably not. So I think that was more. Yeah. And he was doing bigger film scores, I believe. Like I mentioned, the one for Ron Howard, and and I think there are a couple of others that he was starting to get. And I just wanted to, um, you know, in the book, there's some diary entries from Peter's diary, and and there's a diary reference to David, and and it says, "We have to do some parting of the ways here. It's difficult for me, but I know it's the right thing to do. I have to think of my mortality. I have to think of what I'm supposed to do next." I know I'm not supposed to be doing what I'm doing now. And I know I need to concentrate more. So this is what he says in his diary. So you're kind of getting a a, a sense that he's ready to move on to the next thing. And I think that's really what he was, you know, we don't really know, but why he would want to end his relationship with David Joe. But, you know, there is definitely the sense that it might have been, you know, a difficult parting with him and David Joe. Okay, great. So then let's get to that fateful morning, which was March 3rd, 1983. So Anne, who is Harold Ramis's wife, as as we remember, Ramis was the guy who directed Ghostbusters. So Anne Ramis had an appointment with Peter Ivers, an early morning appointment. So when he did not show up, she became very concerned. Apparently, Peter Ivers was you know, pretty punctual. He was actually like kind of on top of those type of things. So that fact that he didn't show up was very concerning for for Anne Ramis. So she first called David Jove, which is kind of interesting to me. And then she called Peter's roommate, Jim Tucker. So Tucker goes into Peter Ivers' room 
and he pulls back the sheets and he finds Ivers in his blood-soaked bed and he is beaten to death. And he was so badly beaten, it was first thought that Ivers had been shot in the face. So the news of Ivers' death just spreads like wildfire to his friends. And they all go down and they congregate at the loft. And they start demanding answers, basically, from the police. Now, the LAPD just, they absolutely bungled this investigation. They, you know, (laughs) they really, they looked at this like, this guy is, you know, doing drugs. He's another itinerant. He's probably gay. This is just another murder down in this crappy part of town. That's really how they, they viewed it, I believe. And they they allowed the friends to go through Ivor's car, which was a Fiat. They allowed the friends to take certain items. And they really just wrote it off and did not seem to care. And in the, um, so it, like I had mentioned, in the weeks leading up to the murder, or maybe I didn't mention it, there had been a few break-ins at that loft building, which was 321 East 3rd Street. And in that building itself, there had been a few break-ins during that time. And so, and he was also, as we said, he was in a really bad neighborhood bordering Skid Row. And uh, there had been 66 murders in that area that year alone. So they, you know, so the police just did not seem to care. And the door to the loft had been jimmied open. And the police initially threw out the damaged moldings where they had tried to, you know, jimmy the lock, basically. So... Truthfully, though, like the break in and the murders had all to me, it had all the hallmarks of like a desperate junkie, like the tools used to break in were from a toolbox in the hall. And the murder weapon was a wood mallet that was taken from the loft. This was not like a well-planned murder, you know, well executed. And there was some stereo equipment missing and also a bunch of new wave theater T-shirts that had gone missing. But really unsatisfied with the job that the police were doing, the friends of Ivers hired a, a detective by the name of David Carbado. So the investigation takes on another level. So that's the basic, the, that's sort of the basic facts of the, uh, of the case. Who, who were the initial suspects? Well, like I said, the police really were, they thought this was just a random you know, junkie on junkie murder, who cares, you know, right. business, you know, just, you know, business as usual. Yeah. So, and is that why they threw out the moldings? Because that's such an odd thing. It, yeah. an odd thing. it was actually retrieved, later retrieved from the dumpster, but they initially they had just thrown it away. And they, thought, yeah. they saw the costumes on the floor. And then apparently there were some pictures of like him and Doug Kenny. So they assumed that it was probably a gay and Why was Harold Ramis? Um, I read that Harold Ramis was was an early suspect. He was, um, yeah. And had to do with his wife. Do you know yeah. more about that? Well, she was apparently quite hysterical at the scene. And I think the police assumed that her emotional reaction may have been because she was having a relationship with him, which it wasn't. Right. So then they thought that they just made some assumption that she was having a relationship with them. And then they... And so then Harold Ramis became a suspect as her husband. That must have been horrifying for him and them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know me, I'm always the pro-police person. But in this case, this is like really bad. I mean, they just seem to kind of write it off as just a, a junkie downtown murder and really not do much investigation. And then the PI comes in and he does a lot of work and he finds a diary, which isn't Real, not it's about 50 pages, and there's some hints in the diary, but the PI doesn't really believe it's random. You Was know? there any pressure put on the police by his friends? I mean, he had very famous friends. Did that all that news coverage did that lead anything? It, it did actually. Uh, it actually by well, the LAPD will deny it. But there was pressure put on by to the LAPD, uh, you know, to to take this more seriously. And then it was assigned to a a robbery murder squad in that area and really taken seriously. Those are the one those are the people that retrieved the molding 
And since they, when they took over, actually David Carboneau, the private investigator, was fired, and then this more serious unit took over. Uh, wow. But again, there wasn't a whole lot to go on. I think that what uh, I think David Jove and if it was not a random junkie murder, I think David Jove makes the best suspect just because of you know, his character and then and then what was found in later in the diary. See, um, Peter Ivers wrote a diary and that was given to David Carboneau. That had not come to light until actually these authors, right, like bugged David Carboneau for it. And he shared it with the authors, uh, Charlie Buckholtz and uh, Josh Frank. So Laura's going to read a little uh, snippet from here. So this is really the most telling thing from the diary. And we, you know, asked them their theory. And it really all comes down to this. And this is what David Carboneau says. I've got a lot. I've got this diary. And if you want my theory, here it is. My theory is David Joe psychologically, David Joe with opportunity, David Joe for financial reasons, David Joe because Peter was his alter ego and leaving him. And throw in that David Joe Joe had an ecstasy deal and Peter Ivers was scared. So apparently the PI thought that that Peter Ivers had gone in on some ecstasy deal with David Joe for purely financial reasons because Ivers needed money. And that when Ivers made this money from selling his treatment, he backed out of the ecstasy deal. And that that's what got him killed. So that is wow. what the PI, uh, his theory was, is that once he and got... why wasn't that followed up? Was that just dismissed? I think it was dismissed because it's something that the PI came up with really after I think the police had already dismissed the case. I see. Because it's interesting, wasn't it reopened? And and didn't Lucy Fisher hire another PI, somebody different, I'd read? I don't, I think Lucy Fisher hired this PI. I don't know if she hired somebody else after him. Because I'd read that, that it was investigated twice. The case was closed, reopened, and then now it's a cold case. I think it has been reopened twice, but I don't, uh, I think it's, I know it's cold now, but I don't think anything has come of, because even with, even with, you know, Peter Jove, and David Jove is dead, um, you know, even with this diary excerpt, I mean, there's really, you know, that's very, there's nothing really to back that up. David Jove, I read that it was on his deathbed that he also said, I didn't do it. It took him all the way to the end of his life to essentially continue telling people he wasn't the person who murdered him. So to me, I'm wondering if the, did associates at New Wave Theater all believe he was behind it? Were, were all, you know, Peter's friends, did they all believe that, uh, that David was behind it? I'm just, I'm wondering what his life was like after this death being seen as this, uh, you know, possible murderer. I don't know. There is a book about him, but it's written by one of his friends. So it's kind of a love letter to him. It doesn't really involve the murder. I didn't read it, but I, I you know, read about it. So I couldn't find a lot of information about David Joe. There, there, there's also, you have to understand, there's sort of been a mythology that's built up around the murder of Peter Ivers as well. It's right. not just, it's like one, you know, they said it was a ritual killing. They thought it would like one roommate actually said that another he lived with two guys, these uh, two other men in this loft. One roommate points the finger to the other, you know, at the other roommate. There's it's it's sort of like who didn't kill Peter Ivers at a certain point. You know what I mean? So it's it just spawned all these kind of really wild theories about who who killed him. My thought is this. I, I'm, I'm a very evidence-based person. I'm a private investigator, as you guys know. I wish that there was enough evidence from that scene, whether it's a jimmied thing or the mallet or some, something they could get DNA right. off of. And if they did genealogical DNA, at least they could eliminate 
the suspects that were in Peter Ivers orbit, in other words. And then then you could maybe by process of elimination determine whether it was somebody who knew at least knew him or didn't know him, basically. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. Well, it's first of all, it's really interesting to hear you talk about your perspective as a PI. And secondly, it's interesting that the friends flocked there so quickly and that that contaminated the crime scene. And you wonder if why and how that happened, because that seems unusual to me. Were they hiding yeah. something? Were they running there to hide something? Did you know? But, it but, was 83, too, you have to think. This is 1983. It's, you know, crime it, scenes weren't preserved in the same way. It's 83, and I do think genuinely it was people gathering because they were just in shock for the most part. I, I Maybe that's naive on my part, but I do kind of think it's like, who would murder this guy, for God's sakes? It's not like he had a whole lot of money, although from... The perspective of somebody trying to just score some drugs, maybe he did. Well, compared to, yeah, comparatively, he may have. Right. Maybe, maybe what could be perceived as having something, stereo equipment or, or was the stereo equipment just a red herring of like, hey, you know, I'm going to, you know, murder this guy and then rip off the stereo equipment because that would be a perfect sort of evidence alibi in some ways for a a random. But I don't really see it. I mean, after Ivers dies, Harold Ramis goes in with David Jobe and invests in uh, New Wave Theater and they rebrand it as the top and and it's very successful. So I, I don't really see the, I mean, maybe if it was a drug deal, but I actually kind of feel bad that this, you know, there, I don't, there, I guess I like evidence too. And there really isn't any evidence against David Job. So to kind of have this looming over his head. True. But I think, but I think if he's unstable and he's had a couple of like sort of rejections from Ivers, Mm -hmm. you know, he's okay. He maybe blew him off on this ecstasy deal and he's walking away from new wave theater. And Jove is, seems kind of like an unstable character. I don't know. You know, I mean, he was known to be violent. He was known to be unpredictable. To me, I just I still can't get over the idea of the of his moving to downtown. I think <laughs> yeah. I know, but, but I've been, I think there's more to it there. I really I mean, to to go and we could say, well, he didn't have money. But at that time, there were so many places you could have gone to in L.A. To me, there's some other element of him trying to separate himself as much as he can from the world that he was a part of. And I wonder what was behind that. And I also wonder if he was living in this place away from everybody else, there had to have been people in his orbit that, you know, people like Lucy Fisher doesn't know about. So to me, it's, it's like he I was agree. living so many different lives, even in his career. And then he has this added life. And within this added life, I mean, the ecstasy thing is very, um, to me, just the, the hint of being part of that you know, where there's smoke. I think there was something there. So very compartmentalized life, you know? I I mean, let's, let's be honest, Peter Ivers. I mean, I love weird, but Peter Ivers was a bit weird. You know what I mean? Like, so more than a bit weird. I actually, I I actually really agree with you, Alex. I mean, uh, he probably could have lived at any one of his friends, guest houses or back. Right. I mean, Doug Kenny, like, literally bought his parents. Like, he just kept buying his hey. parents' houses. They didn't even want them. His parents would be like, stop buying me houses. Like, Except for, no, I think, no, what, what I know of Ivers, he was very proud. I get he was and, proud, and, but, but I mean, his, like, rent, his rent was 250 in Laurel Canyon. How bad was that? I mean... Yeah, but like, this is back in. This is back. That's a that's a king's ransom back. I, I, in, in, well, in the, I mean, in he didn't 80s. need to live in like. Yeah. He didn't need to live that badly. I mean, I think that he probably but, somebody could have hooked him up with like a back well, apartment somewhere. I, I agree, but also he could play his music at any hour, any you know, have all of his equipment there, play his music as loud as he want, any hour he wanted. Right. You know, that's not something that comes. I think there know. might have been a little bit of what Alex is talking about, like getting come some kind of street cred by like really, you know, like the Harvard guy really like maybe slumming, slumming it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really that's slumming true. it. But it's unfortunate because I think that we really would still be hearing from Peter Ivers today. And absolutely. That's what we're left with. 
is the mystery about his, his death. This is, you know, this really is, you know, a, a new wave mystery in many ways. You're, you're left with what if he had lived and lived and he was 36 when he was, was murdered, what else did Peter Ivers have to offer the world, you know? So. Yes, and I mean, Doug Kenny died in 1980. I think feel like cocaine killed Doug and Kenny. Belushi too. And so Belushi, those, I know that right. Harvard class pretty much, or those peers. Those, yeah, yeah, those peers. Yeah, uh, you know, success wasn't. You know, it was tragic for some of them. That's very true. Well, we definitely want to credit. I wanted to credit a, a couple of people. Definitely wonderful to have you guys on Art Laws, and uh, thank you for having us. And, and uh, you know, Such I want to, and definitely want to thank you for introducing us also to Melanie Pullen. We're going to do an episode with her, and we're really looking so excited. To and and for our listeners who want to do a deeper dive, there's the book In Heaven, Everything Is Fine, is a book written by Josh Frank and Charlie Buckholtz. And I want to do a little shout out for Charlie's podcast called Bad Rabbi. It's it's very good. And um, it is. And also in heaven, everything is fine. It's also the title of the song that Peter Ivers wrote for Racerhead. Just so you know. So uh, thank you guys very much. And, and the other thing is too. I actually wanted to do a shout out for Michael Bygrave, who wrote an excellent article about Peter Ivers in LA Weekly way back when, like right, you know, a couple of years after his murder. So that's, that's it. I, I, I think we are uh, so happy to have talked to you guys and this has been great. Thank you. This is, thank you for having us. Yes. Real pleasure and fun. Any final thoughts on, on Peter? I feel like he's here with us. I don't know. That's I nice think we should, we should use this episode to reopen the case. I think, so, I think so, too. I think so, too. No, I, I, I do. You're so little. No, yeah. No, I just, it's, it's sad to think of what would have become of him and, and the contributions he would have had in art, music, comedy. Um, and that's the biggest tragedy. And oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's nice that people are still thinking about him and hopefully that continues. So. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be more to come from Peter Ivers as, far as, as far as writing and, and maybe even I think we're going to see more of his stuff. Yeah, and I think Lucy Fisher is still running his estate and there are new collections being made of his work. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, that's good. exciting. And it's all on Spotify, too, all of his music. So yep, you can check it, it out there, too. So. Yeah. All right, you guys. Thank you so much. Murder, murder, murder.